Glory to his name. Let's say his name out loud. Jesus. Jesus. Say his name out loud. Jesus. That'll clean out any demons in the room today. He took my place. He was laid inside this tomb of sin so that I could come out of this tomb of sin so that you and I could be free today to worship him, celebrate him and what his plans are for his bride, which are beyond anything our minds can comprehend. So I welcome you today. If you're a visitor with us, we welcome you. Encourage you to fill out a visitor card, take it to the Welcome Center and turn that in. They've got a first-time visitor gift for you. If you're watching online today, we welcome. We welcome you. I can just tell you it's better to be here, but if you can't be here, you're still welcome. Today's topic is about faith. And I want you to understand that when I say faith, I'm talking about saving faith. Not make-believe faith, but true, legitimate, saving faith. If you've been a Christian very long, you know this first scripture today, Romans 1.16. The Apostle Paul writes to the Gentile church in Rome, and he says this, For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God. This good news, here's a copy of it, by the way. It is the power of God at work, saving, saving everyone who believes. The Jew first, also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right with Himself, right in His sight. This is accomplished, this getting right with God. This is accomplished from start to finish. How? How? How does he do it? This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that the righteous person has life. He equates faith to life. How could a true believer be ashamed or embarrassed by such a good news about eternal life? How could a true believer be ashamed or embarrassed by the revealed way of making peace with God, the way that makes us right in God's sight? How could you be ashamed or embarrassed by this gospel message? This eternal life and peace with God have been offered to all mankind. It began with the Jews and now has been extended to the Gentiles by one way. By placing our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. One way. From start to finish, Paul writes the church. From the beginning to the end, it's the same way. It's by faith. It is through faith and only through faith that a righteous person has life. Eternal life. It's not by works. It's not by human effort. You can't do enough good deeds to cover your sin debt before God. That doesn't mean we don't do good deeds. It just means that good deeds can't save us from the penalty of our sins. And the penalty of our sin is death. 
And when I say death, I say death and eternal separation from God. In Romans 3.27, Paul writes the church, Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal has not been based, is not based on obeying the law. When he says acquittal, that's when God would look at you and say, not guilty. Our acquittal, our not guilty before God is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. Yes, God has laws. God sees right and God sees wrong. The example are the Ten Commandments. Yes, God has a moral code of absolutes. God sees right and wrong. He has revealed right and wrong. Yes, we should make every human effort to obey the written and moral laws of God revealed in the Bible. But the truth is this, after knowing and reading and attempting to obey all of God's laws revealed in the Bible, the truth is this, you and I will all eventually become a lawbreaker. It's just the truth. Eventually, we will break God's laws. And today I ask you a question, then what? In Galatians 3.10, it says, but those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. If you're depending on your ability to obey all of God's law to make you right with God, you're under a curse. For the scriptures say, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands, all of them, that are written in God's book of the law. If you want your ability to be made right with God, to be justified in God based upon your goodness, you're cursed because nobody's that good. You can't do it. The Jews couldn't obey all of the law. Read the Old Testament, they couldn't obey all of the law, and neither can we. Do you realize that if you study the book of the law, the law of Moses, it's referred to in the Scripture, there were 613 rules. 613 rules, do's and don'ts, revealed by God Himself to Israel. The Jews tried to obey them all, but eventually they would all fail, and eventually they would all become lawbreakers. Everybody became a lawbreaker. In fact, the law that God gave us to reveal his righteous requirements actually became our condemnation, revealing our sinful nature and failures. God's law revealed an unachievable standard of righteousness. An unachievable. Nobody could do it. It was unachievable. 613 rules, the law. This is how God would come and live among the people. I'm going to give you the law. And all the law did was reveal to those people that everybody was a lawbreaker. Romans 4.15. For the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. The only way to avoid breaking the law is to have no law to break. How's that? 
That was the only way we could do it is if he didn't say not to do it. Sin is lawlessness. And we're all sinners. We have all broken God's laws. God announced it in the beginning that sin, lawlessness, equals certain death and separation from God. This is not new. This has been the curse of mankind since the beginning. In Genesis 2.15, let's go back and look at the beginning. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and to watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, Adam. He warned him. You may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God, in this scene, is applying a law, a sense of right and wrong, a sense of good and evil. You are free, Adam, to eat from any tree that's in the garden, except one, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the law has been spoken. God's Word has been revealed. Don't do it. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now, you have to understand, when God told that to Adam, death was not something that was reality in the garden. Nothing died. No one had experienced death. No animals had died. Nothing had died. Death was a new word. Death but you will sure to die. That is the law from the lawgiver. Disobey the law and you will surely die. Don't. Don't. That's a law. Don't. But he did. But he did. Sin is the cause of death. Listen carefully, church. Because there was a time when I don't think the church had to deal with this so much. It was just a given. But I'm afraid the church, even the church, I know the American culture doesn't get it, but I'm afraid many in the church aren't getting it right now. Sin is the cause of death. Sin is the reason people die. And the law is the cause of sin. In fact, I think it's, it's Apostle Paul that says, how would we know that we are not to covet unless God's Word said, do not covet. How would you know that it, you shouldn't steal unless the law says, do not steal? So understand that sin is the cause of death, and the law is the cause of sin. And I know about sin because I know about the law, God's moral laws. If you say that in public setting today, you're going to be ridiculed or canceled. Let me give you an example. It was several years ago I was preaching a funeral, and um, somewhere in the funeral I made a statement something like this, sin is the cause of death, and sin is the reason death is in this room. There was a corpse there. It was a funeral. And when that came out of my mouth, there was a woman who basically stood up, grabbed the chair, threw the chair, and went out the back door just mad. I was glad she went that way instead of this way. <laughs> Why? She's offended by the idea. She's offended by the idea that sin equals death. And the law equals sin. And when God says don't and you do... You're a lawbreaker. 
And lawbreakers have already been told in advance that you will surely die if you break the law. It began with Adam. Did you ever wonder? Let me put it together. Have you ever wondered why the Antichrist is called the man of lawlessness? Just think about the wording. The Antichrist, that's against Christ, is called by another name, a man who breaks God's laws. He rejects Christ the Messiah, thus the anti, anti, and he also rejects God as the lawgiver, so he's the lawless one, the man of lawlessness. When Adam and Eve broke the law, something happened. They had to leave the presence of God. Holiness could not dwell with unholiness and sin. Lawlessness could not dwell with the lawgiver. So two things naturally occur when the law reveals a lawbreaker. Listen, when the law, you shall not eat of that tree, reveals a lawbreaker. He ate of the tree. Two things will happen. The first is you must now be separated from the presence of God. You can no longer, Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. There was an intimacy with God. That has now been broken. Lawlessness, sin, has broken fellowship with the lawgiver. Genesis 3.23. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. Why? It's not complicated. Why did he banish Adam and Eve from the garden? You're lawbreakers. You broke my law. Holiness cannot dwell with unholiness. You've become unholy. And he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim, angels, to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Banished from the garden. In the garden is life. In the garden is the tree of life. Banished from the presence of God. Banished from the tree of life, which would give life to Adam and Eve. And then something happened. So the first thing that happened to the lawbreakers was what? You can no longer stay with me. There's going to have to be a distance between me and you. I'm going to put up a gate, a flaming sword. You cannot come into the presence that you once experienced before you became a lawbreaker. Now you're on the outside looking in. That's the first thing, but there's a second thing. It took some time, but it still happened. Genesis 5, 5. Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. And then he died. Who told him that that would happen? The lawgiver. You will surely die. Now listen, somebody will, and I'll just tell you in the past, many have. Somebody will ask me, do you think 930 years? You think that's a literal 930 years like we count years today? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. And if you, right now in the room, if you'd be honest with yourself, if you're struggling with that literal 930 years, I bet you're really struggling with eternal life. Because mathematically speaking, eternal life is more than 930 years. The law. 
It brought sin. And sin brought separation from God. Sin brought death. Separation from God and death. Not just to Adam and Eve. The whole world. Because all of us came from Adam. So let me ask you a question. This is all laying the foundation where we're going today. Do you believe that so far? All of that so far? That you're a lawbreaker? You came from Adam? You're corrupted? Your flesh is corrupted? And unless something changed, you are sure to die. Because you're a lawbreaker. I'm a lawbreaker. Maybe you really don't look at yourself as lawless. Maybe you look at yourself and say, well, I think that's a little bit harsh. I've never been arrested, never spent any time in jail or prison. So I don't really like to be thinking about myself as lawless or sinful. I'm a good person. In fact, a lot of people feel like that, hey, I'm a good person. And I ask you a question. Is anyone a good person? I guess it would depend upon how you look at the word good. What's your standard or definition of the word good? Does God grade on a curve? Now, I got to tell you, growing up in high school, I just loved teachers who graded on curves. I did. My only hope was there were more people in the classroom stupider than I than I was. That was my choice for success. Okay. Maybe, you're, maybe you look at yourself comparing yourself to other people when it comes. Is anyone good? Maybe here's what goes on you. Maybe say, well, I'm better than Billy. Sorry if there's any Billys in the room today. Well, God, I'm, I'm good. I'm better than Billy. I don't think God looks at us like that. Instead of Billy, what if God compares you to another man? Jesus. Not Billy, but another man named Jesus. Well, I'm not as good as Jesus, maybe. No, you're not as good as Jesus, period. He was perfect. So what does that make you and what does that make me? I am a sinner. I am a lawbreaker. It doesn't matter if it's the Old Testament or the New Testament. This truth remains the same. In fact, let me prove it to you. Let's look at the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 14. Here's an Old Testament example. Lord, we confess our wickedness and that of our ancestors too. We all have sinned against you. Now, Jeremiah is not struggling with the fact that every one of us are all sinners. So let's jump into the New Testament, Romans 3.23. For everyone has sinned. All of us, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. So what did that truth do to Adam and Eve? What did that simple truth, what truth? That God is the lawgiver and we're lawbreakers. What did that truth do to Adam and Eve when they broke the law? Separation from God, eternal death. Everybody listen. Separation from God. You can no longer stay inside the garden. Eternal death. 930 years, Adam, you're going to die. Sin is the cause of death, and law is the cause of sin. God said, don't, and we did. Okay, all that foundation. Now that I've called everyone in the church a lawless sinner, we're going to go to where we really want to go today. 
How do we get from lawbreakers separated from God and destined for death in the grave to peace with God and eternal life? Here's the purpose of today's message. So, we acknowledge our sinful nature. We acknowledge that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How do we get from here, lawbreakers, to here at peace with God, forgiven of our sins, and have eternal life? How do you get from here to here? Faith. There's only one way. It's called faith. Faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, that brings up the next question for today, and really the reason I preach today's message. If the only way to get from there to here is a word called faith, the bridge from death to life, the bridge from a lawbreaker to forgiven and redeemed, if that word singularly is faith, What's the definition? What is the definition of faith? <clears throat> Let me ask it another way. What is genuine, life-saving, never-to-be-separated-from-God-by-death faith? What is it? Let's begin by saying what faith is not. In order to define its legitimacy, its real definition, let's figure out what it's not. Because I think many people, even church people, are struggling with this single word that bridges us from death to life. Faith is not knowing about Jesus. Faith is not knowing about God the Father. Knowing about, that's not called faith. Faith is not coming to church every now and then. Even though I think you should come to church more than every now and then, but that's not faith. Faith is not getting baptized. Even though you should be baptized. Faith is not something you said or something you did years ago in a moment of conviction. Faith is, and here's the reason for today's title, faith is, so do I. Now, I'm going to explain what that means from this point forward. Faith is, so do I. Faith is the idea that I know the truth about this word that takes us from death to life. And the truth is revealed in the word. And my plan, my goal personally, is to replicate that biblical faith instead of redefining that word to make me comfortable in my life journey. To replicate instead of redefining. To replicate what? Legitimate saving faith instead of redefining the word to makes me comfortable. Stay with me. This is very important. Faith is, biblically speaking, so do I. Nobody can do this faith thing for you. No one will be able to have faith for you. Your parents can't be your faith. You can't be their faith. It doesn't work like that. But there is an example in the Bible, church. There is an example of genuine life-saving, never to be separated from God by death, faith in the Bible. We must 
used the word of God to, to describe and define this word called faith that moves us from death to life. Why? Because the modern world has taken many long-standing words and redefined them in our generation. In my generation, I have seen the modern culture, let's call it the American culture for now, that has taken words that once meant something and redefine them to mean something else because it makes you comfortable in your current life status, your life condition. Now, here's the problem. I understand why the world does it. The problem is it's happening inside the church. Many are redefining the word faith to mean something that makes you comfortable in your current lifestyle so that you don't have to make any adjustments. You just redefine the word. There's one word that is between life and death, faith. So let's redefine the word faith so that we can be comfortable and not have to do anything in our life except what I want to do. Let me give you an example. The modern world has redefined long-standing words, even in my generation. Let me give you an example. The word gay does not mean the same thing today it meant when I was a kid. The word, listen carefully, has been hijacked and redefined. Now it means something totally different than the original meaning of the word. Why? The word rainbow doesn't mean the same thing today it meant when I was a kid. The word has been hijacked and redefined to mean something totally different than the original word. Why? Why? The word marriage does not mean the same thing today that it meant when I was a kid. Why? Why would anybody do that? The word male and female has been hijacked and redefined so that it doesn't mean anything like it did when I was a kid in the original definition of the word. There is a tendency in our modern culture to change the definition of things we don't particularly agree with so that we might find them acceptable in our new enlightened way of thinking. So we just take a word that meant something and we cancel it, hijack it, redefine it. And now I like that word. I like it now. I'm afraid that same thing has happened to the word faith. Hijacked. Canceled. Redefined. This word faith has been so watered down, so diluted, that it's lost in the church its core meaning and power. So where do I get this so-do-I connection to this genuine, life-saving, never-to-be-separated-from-God-by-death faith? Today I'm going to show you through the Scriptures how to replicate instead of redefine the Word that takes us from death to life. To replicate it. True biblical faith. The original meaning, the original definition, the original power of the word faith. In Romans chapter 4 verse 3, 
For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God. This is in the New Testament. Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of. God counted him as righteous. You know when he says counted him righteous? He, made, he went from wrong to right. He went from over here to over here. He went from lawbreaker to righteous, from unrighteous to righteous. What, how do you get from there to here? He counted him as righteous because of his faith. Faith is the word that took him from here to here, from death to life. Abraham believed God. So do I. That's it. Genuine, life-saving, never to be separated from God by death, faith. Abraham believed God and something happened that Abraham didn't do. God counted him as righteous to be right with God because of faith. Abraham is the literal example of true faith. So if you want to know the definition of the word faith that takes you from death to life, Abraham is the literal example of true faith that makes a person right with God, a genuine, life-saving, never to be separated by death, faith. I remember back when I preached that five-part Jerusalem series over and over and over every week, I, I would say the same thing to the church, you can become an Isaac. You can become an Isaac. Now, it, maybe you don't know what that story was about. You can become an Isaac. And the essence of that statement was this, that God called Abraham to take his only son Isaac, put him on the altar of death. Because in this, God was going to reveal legitimate faith and how you can cross over from death to life. So when Isaac goes on the altar, Abraham is actually willing to kill his son. But something happened. The spiritual truth is revealed. You can become an Isaac. So what's Isaac's story? Why do you want to be an Isaac? Number one, he's the legitimate son of Abraham. Number two, Isaac came off the altar of death, and a lamb took the place of Isaac on the altar of death. That's how you cross from death to life. That's how you become an Isaac. You become a, a son of Abraham. And you move by Abraham's faith, you move from death to life. You can become an Isaac by faith in Jesus Christ today. Today, you can become an Isaac. You can come off of the altar of death. That's over here. And a lamb will take the place of your death. And you can move from death to life by faith. The New Testament connects Abraham-type faith to the true children of Abraham. Now, here's, here's the connection between you can become an Isaac. The New Testament connects Abraham's faith to the true children of Abraham, the, the Isaacs. Those who will experience a genuine life-saving, never-to-be-separated-from-God faith event. Galatians 3.6. In the same way, Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham, let me, just call, let me call them for the sake of this illustration, let me call them Isaacs. The real children of Abraham, Isaacs, then are those who put their faith in God. Those are the Isaacs. Those are the ones who have crossed over from death to life. The real children of Abraham. In Romans 4.11, talking about a circumcision. 
Circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith and that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous. Even before Abraham was physically circumcised, God declared him righteous. So Abraham is the spiritual father. This is so important. If you want to be an Isaac, you better find out who your father is. So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith but have not been circumcised. Gentiles. They are counted as righteous because of their faith. And Abraham is also the spiritual father. Two times, spiritual father is revealed. He's also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised. That's the Jewish people. But only if they have the same kind of faith Abraham had before he was circumcised. You see what? Abraham is, he's revealed as the spiritual father of those circumcised and uncircumcised, the Jewish people and the Gentile people. He's the spiritual father of both groups. You can become an Isaac, but you must do what Abraham did. Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. So what if I said today, Abraham believed God and so do I. What do you think that really means personally? Abraham believed God and so do I. Do you get that statement, so do I? The idea is this. I am fearful. I am fearful for the American church that has taken the word that is exemplified by a man named Abraham and diluted it and redefined it in such a way that it no longer has its original meaning. I am fearful that that's in the church. So when I say, so do I, what I'm saying is that I acknowledge that saving faith must be equal to define the definition of Abrahamic faith. It must be the same kind of, it's got to be the same word. You can't redo the word and call it faith. He is the example. He is the father of faith. He is the father of all who have faith. So if you want to know what faith is, you don't get to define it. He defines it. So when I say Abraham believed God and so do I, what it is, it forces me to take the definition of Abraham's own life, not mine, not yours, not culture, his. You can't say, so do I, until you know exactly what Abraham did to become the definition. That's why I preach today's sermon. I want to show you exactly what Abraham did to become the definition of the word. So what did Abraham's faith look like? That would reveal the true definition of the faith. What did Abraham do? If you study the scripture, he becomes the father of our faith, the definition of our faith, the essence of faith itself. It started, here we go, here we go. It started with a word from God. Faith always starts with the Word from God. Faith never starts with man. Never. It always begins with God. That's the grace part 
of faith. From our perspective, Abram, Abraham was an old man when God comes with unmerited favor. There's the grace. To begin something that would change the world and set an example of genuine, life-saving, never-to-be-separated-from-God faith. Genesis 12.1. Let's find out the true definition of faith. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families on the earth, some translations say all the nations, all the peoples. But I want you to understand that you are in that sentence and I am in that sentence. All the families in, on the earth will be blessed through what God's about to do through Abraham. All of them. Remember how it all starts? God said to Abraham. God initiates it. It's called grace. You can't do it. God starts it. We are saved by grace through faith. God starts it. You did not call him. He called you. Abraham did not call him. God called Abraham. Abraham, so let me give you a description. What's happening in this scene? I'm going to try to melt it down in the simplest form. Abraham received a word from God. God calls Abraham. He receives a word from God. What's the word? I want you to leave your homeland. You're going to leave your family, and you're going to become a nomad. You're going to become a wanderer. I'm going to tell you where to go later on. Just go. He receives a word from God. Abraham believed the word. Abraham accepted the word as truth, and Abraham obeyed the word, got up and left town. You know what it's called? Faith. He received the word. He believed the word. He believed the word to be truth. He obeyed the word. It's called faith. It's called faith. You don't get to redefine it. This is it. I want you to specifically notice verse 4 in this application of genuine faith. So Abraham departed as the Lord had instructed him. And Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he left around. So Abraham departed. Let me ask you a question. If Abraham received the word, believed, and accepted the word as truth, could he then leave out, could he then leave out, obeyed the word, and still be called faith? He heard a word, he believed the word, he received the word to be true, but I ain't leaving Haran. Is it still called faith? This is what scares me. This is what scares me for the church. Is it still called faith? Does believing God equal obeying God? Does faith require obedience to be genuine faith? This is what scares me for the church. Let's go to the next scene. Years go by. There's much time in waiting for the promise of God to be fulfilled. Abraham is 75 years old. God says, I'm going to bless everybody in the world through what I'm about to do, you, do to you. You're going to have a son. You're going to have a son through Sarah. He'll be the legitimate child. It'll be Isaac. And 25 years goes by, a time of waiting. Faith, that great big word, always requires the time of waiting. There is no faith without waiting on God's Word to be completed. During the time of waiting, Abraham and Sarah made a tragic mistake. 
that still affects the world today. His name is Ishmael. Ishmael is what happens when your faith doesn't accept the time of waiting. Ishmael is what happens in your life when you don't accept the time of waiting for the Word of God to be fulfilled, and you think maybe you need to help God along to accomplish His good and perfect will. You get an Ishmael. Finally, 25 years after Abraham's first encounter with the Word, Isaac comes. And what do you think the next word from God to Abraham is? He has waited 25 years, and the next word from God, now Isaac has grown some He's a young man at this point, Genesis 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. I want you to read that verse. Why? Is Abraham's faith legitimate? Is it real? Could he possibly want to redefine it? So God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, what's the test going to look like? Abraham... God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. God tested Abraham's faith to see if it was legitimate. Was it Genuine, life-saving, never to be separated from God by death kind of faith? Or was it just shallow and not legitimate? After all the waiting, 25 plus years of waiting, the ultimate test of Abraham's faith. And would Abraham pass the test? And what's the test? What, let's, as we define faith, if we look at Abraham's life, Abraham received a word from God. I'm going to give you a son, and through that son, I'm going to give you more children than the sands of the sea, more than the stars of the sky. And by the way, I want you to go kill him. Does that make any sense to you? Abraham received the word, believed the word. Is he going to obey the word? What's the word? What's the new word? I want you to take him to Moriah, put a knife in him, set him on fire. That's the test of faith. Do you know what the very next verse in Genesis says? Verse 3. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey, took two of his servants with him, along with his son, Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. The next morning, he got up early. You don't read over that he got up early. What's he getting up early to do? His instruction, Abraham received a word from God. He received a word. God spoke to Abraham. God spoke to Abraham. And the next morning, he gets up early and starts, takes his son and starts out for Moriah. The next morning. What does, the, what does that tell you? That's how we respond to God's word. So, whatever you might think your definition of faith is, let me tell you what the real defini definition of faith is. When God speaks, your response is immediate and your response is complete. That's faith. It's not your definition, it's Abraham's definition. 
He got up early the next morning and started to a place that he didn't want to go. That's how you pass the test. Abraham received the word. He believed and accepted the word as truth, and Abraham obeyed the word. That's how the Bible describes faith. Do you think, let me ask you, do you think it would still be called faith if Abraham told God, this time you asked too much? Is it still faith? The church is struggling. Do you understand? The church is struggling. Why? Because there's this idea that I can redefine the word until it makes me comfortable. Could Abraham still be the man of faith if he said to God, this time you ask too much. You know, before you ask me to leave my family, go to another place, live in tents the rest of my life, this time is too much. Would it still be called faith? Do you think it would still be called faith if Abraham believed the, obeyed the first calling, but he rejected this one because, God, this is too much? Do you, the saving faith, here's the question, the million-dollar question. Does saving faith require action and obedience to be legitimate? Or would you like to redefine the word so that it makes you more comfortable? Is our calling as a church to replicate Abrahamic faith or to redefine Abraham faith? Which one is our calling? So just in case you think, well, you know what? There's grace. You're saved by grace through faith. Through faith. So let's go look at the truth. Not opinions, the truth. James 2, 21. James 2, 21. What's the New Testament say about saving faith? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions? when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. And so it happened, just as the Scriptures say, Abraham believed. I jumped over to another verse. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions worked together. His faith, you cannot redefine it. His faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. Actions and faith made his faith complete. And, it's so, and, and so it happened just as the Scriptures say. Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. So you see... We are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith alone. This make anybody uncomfortable? Many churches today say they believe in God, but they have redefined and diluted the word faith to fit their self-centered worldly loves. Here's the best way I can describe it. Much of the modern American church, faith is a philosophy. It is not a lifestyle. It's an intellectual thing. It is not your life. It is a, it is a philosophical, intellectual, in my head only kind of identification with God. It has nothing to do with your life at all. In James 2, verse 19, you say you have faith, 
For you believe that there is one God? Good for you. Even the demons believe this. And they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? So let me give you a summary. So do I. Abraham believed and so do I. There is something very specific inside of that statement for me personally. This is it. Abraham believed, so do I. Believed what? Believed what? Abraham believed. It keeps saying, Abraham believed. Abraham believed. Well, he got a word. He got a word. He got a word. He got, okay. Okay. He got a word. But something inside of that word, something specific for me today. This is big. This is big. Believed what? Hebrews 11. This is New Testament. Verse 17. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice. When God was testing him. He's testing his faith to see it's real. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his son Isaac. Even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned. Here it comes. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, that if he actually put a knife in him and Isaac died, he set him on fire. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. That's it. That's what Abraham believed. And so do I. Everybody listen. That's what Abraham believed and so do I. God is able to raise the dead. Number one. And I can become an Isaac, number two. That's what I believe. He will raise me even if I die. I believe we can become Isaacs. We can come off of the altar of certain death and separation from God, the curse of Adam. I believe God has offered his perfect spotless lamb, Jesus, to take away the sins of the world, my sins, and give me eternal life in his presence. I can become an Isaac. I can become an Isaac. I will experience the resurrection of the last day by faith in Jesus Christ. Abraham believed and so do I. Why is this so urgent? Why do I preach this message today with so much urgency? Because many will experience the horror of the second death Described in the Bible, which is eternal separation from God at the white throne judgment. Because they have redefined faith as a philosophy. They have redefined faith as an intellectual experience with God. Rather than a life that is surrendered to Him. Many are following after a diluted, redefined word called faith. A philosophy that is not connected in any way to a lifestyle. Your lifestyle is not going to save you. But genuine faith has a lifestyle. Faith is a salvation issue. I started today by making that point clear. Faith is a salvation issue. And the lack of faith is a serious issue. Why? Because it gives persons who redefined it, a false sense of security. A false sense of security. Because you say you have faith, you believe there's one God, so do the demons. It's not faith. Many will be lost because they refuse to put their faith in Jesus, the Lamb of God. 
And because they refuse to put their faith in Jesus, they will die in their sins. Let me show it to you. This was really the scene that the Lord impressed upon me the most. Jesus describes another spiritual father, Abraham, scene in the Bible. The urgency of faith is described by Jesus himself in the scene that I'm about to read to you. The story is in the rich man and Lazarus, two men, both with eternal consequences. And in this scene, three times, three times, Father Abraham will be called upon. Now here, before I read it, you need to understand, the only legitimate Father Abrahams are fathers of Isaacs. You have to be an Isaac to call upon Father Abraham in the category of the children of God and in the category of legitimate faith. You have to be an Isaac, a child of the promise. Here we go. It's the rich man and Lazarus story. Finally, the poor man, Lazarus, died. He was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. Now understand, Abraham's 2,000 years before this story. But this Lazarus dies. Angels carry him to paradise to be with Abraham. Let me tell you, that's where you want to be. He's the father of our faith. The rich man also died, and he's buried. And his soul went to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in a far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, here it comes, number one, Father Abraham. He assumed he was an Isaac. He assumed he was an Isaac. He is not an Isaac. If he were an Isaac, he would be with Abraham. He is deceived. Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, son, remember that during your lifetime, you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing. So now he is here being comforted and you are in anguish. And besides, there's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. And then the rich man said, number two, here it comes again. Please, Father Abraham, he thinks he's an Isaac. He's not an Isaac. Please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home. He now knows there's no hope for him. Listen, church, he now knows he's finished. Nothing else he can do. But what about my family? What about those back on earth? What, what about those back on earth who think they're Isaacs? Father Abraham, at least send him, send Lazarus to my father's home, for I have five brothers, and I want him, Lazarus, to go warn them, my brothers, who think they're Isaacs, so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. I want to hold it up. Ready? Your brothers can read what they wrote, and I'm going to tell you, every one of you in this room has a copy of it. You can read what they wrote. In fact, I'm reading it to you today. The rich man replied, here it comes, number three. No, 
Father Abraham. But if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will do something. Do not read over the sentence. If somebody came back from the dead, if somebody supernaturally rose from the dead, then those who think they're Isaacs, they will repent of their sins and turn to God. Whoa. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. Spiritual father Abraham, three times. Abraham believed, and so do I. I believe the word of the one that rose from the dead, Jesus. I believe the word. You and I have received the word of God that reveals everything today. Do you? Let me ask you a question. Do any of you, like this rich man in torment, feel a sense of urgency? I do. You know, that's the second part that I am fearful for the church. Do you feel a sense of urgency? This man is in torment, and his desire, after he finds out he can't get out, what's his number two request? Father Abraham, save my family! Go warn my brothers. I feel a sense of urgency. I'm not going to apologize. Time is running out for many to go warn your brothers. This is the Great Commission. Go into all the world, preach the gospel. Tell them how you can become Isaacs and come off of the altar of death and find life. It's called faith. Yes, sometimes our worldly circumstances look hopeless. I look around sometimes and I see this dark world and I'll tell you, it looks hopeless. But we must hold on to the promises of God's Word by faith. Faith requires endurance. Faith requires endurance in the time of waiting. Faith, all of you are experiencing, I'm experiencing a time of testing. Right now, you are experiencing a time of testing of your faith. Is your faith legitimate? If God gave you a word, would you do it or is it just intellectual? Do you even have ears to hear what the Spirit says to you? And if He spoke to you, would you recognize His voice? Would you follow Him? Would you follow Him? This is God's Word. Would you follow Him? Faith requires obedience. Our time of testing to see if our faith is genuine. Romans 4.18. Even when there was no reason for hope. This is Abraham's story. I mean, let's face it. When you're 100 years old, you're really expecting to have a child. But what if you had a word from God? Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping. Believing that he would become the father of many nations, for God had said, there's the word, for God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about a hundred years of age, he figured his body was as good and dead, and so was Sarah's womb. And Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. Do you see, this is the definition of faith. You cannot redefine it. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger. In the time of testing, his faith grew stronger. And then this, he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. Because of Abraham's faith, that's faith. 
That's it. And because of his faith, in the time of testing, he just became more and more and more and more and more confident. Somehow, I don't know how he's going to do it, he's going to keep his promise. I wish that described the church. Somehow, I don't know how he's going to do it, he's going to keep his promise. And because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. And when God counted him as righteous, here comes the grand finale. It wasn't just for Abraham's benefit. It was recorded. I'm reading it to you today for our benefit too. Assuming, excuse me, assuring us that God will also count you and I righteous. If, if we believe in him. The one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. Abraham believes, so do I. So let me ask you, here's the closing. Can you say that today? And when I say, so do I, you're acknowledging that the definition of the word faith is Abrahamic faith. Abraham believed, and so do I. Genuine, life-saving, never be separated from God by death faith. Today, in the middle of all the craziness of our dark world, we hang on to faith. Why? Because we, the church, are fully convinced that God is able to keep every promise He made to His bride. Every single word He ever gave us is ours through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is called faith. You and I are in the time of testing right now. To see if your faith is legitimate or you're a phony baloney. That your faith is intellectual, philosophical. It hasn't touched your life or your lifestyle. And understand this today. We have the Holy Spirit inside of us to strengthen us and empower us. We have the Bible, the Word of God, to guide our pathway into the darkness and I challenge you today, church, hold on to your faith. It is the only thing that's going to move you from death to life. Faith. Last scripture. So do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Faith. Don't throw it away. Remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now. So that you'll continue to do God's will. Then you'll receive all that he has promised. For in just a little while, the coming one will come and he will not delay. And my righteous ones, in the time of waiting, my righteous ones will live by faith. But I will take no pleasure in anyone who turns away. But we're not like those who turn away from God to their own destruction. Remember the rich man? To their own destruction. We're not like those who turn away from God to their own destruction. We are the faithful ones whose souls will be saved. I'll ask Chad to come on out. Church, there is a movement in the American church to redefine the word. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it. Abraham is the father of the faith. He is the example of what the word itself means. He received the word from God. God started it. He believed the word from God. He obeyed the word from God. Early the next morning, he got up and went to do that which he did not want to do.
because he feared God more than man. So we're going to sing a song. It's an invitation time. I have no idea what the Holy Spirit's doing in individual lives. I have no idea. That's his job, not mine. But I tell you today, is your faith legitimate? Have you crossed over from death to life? It's only by faith that this happens. Faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Abraham believed. Can you say today, so do I. The invitation's open. Let's stand.